everyone, this is Jacob from Attention to Detail. Welcome back to our second episode in our series of music from pandemic years. I have a very special guest who is joining me live today, you know, eight feet, ten feet away. Uh, but I am back in Indianapolis and I am joined by my long lost co host, Hannah Reffitt. Welcome back in the flesh to the podcast. Hi, in the flesh. It's good to actually see your face. It's been. It's been a long months. time. It's been months. It's been yeah. months. You did you called in but it wasn't quite the same. No. We ended uh or you know, stopped having concerts like end of March mm-hmm. and it is now June. So literally it has been multiple months. But we're back, although unclear when we're gonna be back permanently because some Indianapolis is, is a weird place, right? Yeah, yeah, lots of lots of change going on. Yeah, um, no kidding. Even beyond the pandemic right now, so. Um, oh yeah, just and it, it was weird. I was like, felt slightly dystopian today when I was mm. walking around, and you've got, you've got people sitting at restaurants without masks. Like Indiana is open again. Yeah. Eating dinner, being served by people in masks next to businesses that are boarded up because there's protests going on. I mean, it's just like, what? what is this world? Could not like? have imagined it. The last time you and I had like a regular pre-pandemic podcast with each other would never have been able to guess. How could, and yeah. I mean, it was just like... Nothing. And zero to 60, where like... Oh, it my was, God. It was like three days yep. where the first day they were installing hand sanitizer in mm-hmm. the building. Mm-hmm. The second day, they were like, okay, Europe is closed permanently. <laughs> yeah. And the third texting, day like, texting our boss yeah. at like 9 o'clock at night, oh no. <laughs> and then the next day is just like, okay, concerts are indefinitely yep. canceled. Yep, sending guest artists back home frantically. Yeah, right. it's just... And just, yeah, it, and insane. It, I remember when we left the offices that day, it felt like a weird... For, I felt like I just got fired, basically, yeah. because I had to, like, vacate my office. Yeah. But then it also felt like the last day of school at the same time. Because yeah. we were, like, saying bye to everyone. Oh, and it, very it was much like, like the last day of school. See you next year. Yeah, but it was it, like, I don't know when I'm going to see you again. But. So I had made a joke to a, a colleague. I was like, I feel like I just got kicked out of school and I don't know what school I'm going to go to ne- next, and everything's confused. It's just been... It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it was It was a weird uh, w- weird exit. It's, yeah, and but now we're here and uh, recording another podcast. Yeah, I and, mean, what I have been thinking about all yeah. this thing is that th- even through world wars and other pandemics, like, classical music has survived through all of yeah. that. And it's sustained itself, and it's been able to be okay. It's that is that is the point of why we're doing this is, mm. is kind of to to show that despite pandemics or social change or anything else that might go on in the course of kind of real human history, musical history continues to progress. We continue to get great classical music, and as I mentioned on our intro, it's been here long before we were here and it will be here long after none of us are are here anymore so it's i hope <laughs> hopefully that's a a silver line hopefully we're all here for a while you know mm. dodge the covid but but even if we're here for a very long time 
classical music will will outlast us. Yes. So, in any case, we're talking today about the year 1890. 1890, there was a big Russian flu epidemic. Last time we talked about cholera. Uh, today is the flu. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that uh, has been abundantly clear to me in like doing very preliminary research on some of these pandemics is that we are very, very... It, it seems like an insane time right now. We are very lucky to live in 2020. Oh, I love modern medicine. Yeah, compared yeah. to... Compared to <laughs> Speaking of which, I don't know if I told you it's not contagious, but I have an ear infection at the moment. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I didn't tell you that. I already I mentioned it, but uh, on the podcast. Okay. But yeah, I mean, antibiotics. Take a couple Great. of those. Love you're it. done. But similarly, I've just been researching. Like, I mean, it would have been terrible to have you been. So have you been looking into these diseases as to like what they were and a little bit yeah. and, and kind of the mortality rates and these type mm. of things. I mean, coronavirus worldwide is, is super, super serious. Mm. Obviously people are, you know, we shut down everything. I, I'm probably wrong on the exact, but when I looked, it was like 1% mortality rate. Mm. I don't know where it's been since then, but that was like what it was. That's what they were talking about. I think as it being like 10 times greater than the flu or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, you go way back, but like the black death killed 33%, like a third of the world. Yeah. And I mean, even these cholera epidemics, they had just, the, the numbers are staggering compared to, mm. and we were in like a worldwide shutdown over a 1% yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. So just in perspective, I mean, it's terrible, like coronavirus and all this stuff going on, but we live, it's, we're more fortunate to live in 2020 than We are, and we've also, like, developed as humanity, and we're so much cleaner than we were, oh, yeah. and we know so much more yeah, um, about sanitary health and all this stuff, that, I think that and we're lucky for that. We are definitely yeah. lucky for that. So, in any case, uh, 1890, better to be alive in 2020 than 1890, that's okay. my takeaway, but... There was some great music being composed. Mm. In history in 1890, our previous year, 1854, was right on the heels of some big revolutions in Europe. Mm. The late 19th century in Europe was actually a relatively calm time. You were in this uh, transition phase between these revolutions of, of the early 19th century and what would eventually become World War One. And so it was a time of relative stability, although there were still a lot of monarchical structures in Europe. And so liberals, people who wanted... I mean, that's another thing that we are... Well, let's not get into that. Uh, I, was, I was about to say we live in a democracy as opposed to a monarchy, but who even knows anymore? I don't... Yeah. Let's, 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 <laughs> we'll talk about that off. Let's dodge that. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a bad path to go down. But I was going to say, yeah, I mean, but people were... Uh, there was no semblance of, of women's suffrage. I was reading about, there were a lot of movements for mm. male suffrage, like, oh, please allow any male to vote, not even thinking about allowing women to vote. Oh, so, love that. Yeah, it's really, uh, uh, we, we have made some strides. Yeah. That's one thing I've learned. So, in any case, there was an emperor in place in Austria, Austro-Hungary, and what will be relevant for... Our episode today is the area of kind of Austro-Hungary, which controlled the Czech-speaking lands, the Slovak-speaking lands, in addition to uh, 
Vienna, Austria, Hungary. And so we'll pick up with a composer that we left off with, Brahms. When we, on our last episode, we heard one of Brahms's first works, his, his piano trio, Opus 8. And today in 1890, this is the very end of Brahms's life. And we're going to focus on a piece that he wrote, which was originally supposed to be the last piece that he was ever going to compose. He then was re-inspired to write a few more select works, especially by this clarinetist, and so he wrote two clarinet sonatas and a clarinet quintet. But originally, this was going to be the last piece that he was going to write, this second string quintet. And Hannah, you did you get a chance to listen to a little bit of this piece? Yes, I did. Today what were I your did. What were your, uh, I'll put you on the spot, what were your initial impressions? Um... Lovely. I love the last movement. Uh-huh. Um, definitely the most, uh, I guess, exciting and exuberant and engaging of the four. I agree. Um, lovely. I watched... Who performed it when I watched it on YouTube? It was the Israeli Quartet, okay. I believe. Lovely. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. Okay, good. Yeah. And what did you think... We're, we're going to review uh, all of the movements very briefly, but what did you think of the... Did you listen to the second and third movements at all? Mm, yeah. And what yeah. was your no pressure? What is your what was your thought on on those movements? I mean, honestly, because it's been um, a while since I've practiced my yeah. listening techniques, I felt a little rusty listening to a, um, a quartet piece. Yeah. Um, and string uh, quartet music or chamber music um, is something that I'm still learning and still getting used yeah. to as opposed to maybe orchestral music. Um, so I would have to say for <laughs> the second and third movements, with uh, pure honesty, I glossed over them. That's okay. Uh, we're, we're all about pure honesty here on the podcast. <laughs> um, I, I imagine a lot of our listeners can relate that if they are concert goers or have gone to a lot of concerts themselves, they might be a little out of practice at mm. the moment. That's part of the reason why we're doing these episodes and all of this content during quarantine is that it's actually an excellent time to to listen and to practice mm. if you have some time. So we're just going to gloss over these pieces right now, but but I'd encourage our listeners to go, go listen to them. I ask you about the second and third movements because these are really perplexing movements and they're kind of indicative of Brahms's late style as very much opposed to his early style and on our previous episode we saw again one of his earliest pieces and very standard layout of the pieces a, a first movement in sonata form a scherzo a slow movement and a finale that's what we usually expect from a four movement piece but as he progressed in life Brahms kind of uh, blended the two inner movements of scherzo and slow movement. And so he start writing. He started writing these kind of intermezzo-type movements that are really slow movement scherzo hybrids. Mm. And they're very interesting, but they're very odd pieces in a way. They exist in a lot of his chamber music and symphonies because they're not really slow movements. They're not really scherzos. And they also all of them tend to have this kind of mysterious, wandering mm. tone. And so maybe let's start with the second movement. Um, we won't 
really listen to any of the third movement, but the second movement is a really interesting one. It's one that I uh, was, we focused on very intensively in my music theory class because, in fact, it's a really cool technique that Brahms uses here where you can't really figure out the key of the piece. Mm. And so it, the key is where our home base is, where, where we latch on to when we're our, our tonal center. We've talked about keys a little bit on this podcast before. But let's just listen to the beginning of this second movement. And the first two chords you hear are the two possible keys. And Hannah, I'm going to put you on the spot. And I just want you to tell me uh, which one you feel like is the home base. Okay. Okay? I think this will be, it sounds intimidating, but it'll be easier than it sounds. Is it going to be the, the first chord that we hear or the second chord that we hear? And your task is to figure out which one is our home base. Okay. Okay? So here's the, here's the clip. one of those two do you feel like is our home base? I'm curious. I've guessed two. Two? Mm-hmm. Do you have any particular reason or? Um, beyond probability. Uh-huh. You're <laughs> going with two is the higher probability? Yeah. Okay. But, but any other reason or? Um, then you continue to, to play yeah. further and it seems as if it sort of settles into that general area of the second. Yeah, okay. I like that choice. From someone, a complete non-musician. Well, listen, the answer is that it's kind of a trick question because... Are they this? They're not the same. Oh, no. yeah. But the way this harmony is working mm. for our interested listeners, I, I think we've mentioned on the podcast before is there's this thing called a tonic and a dominant. Mm. Dominant creates expectation. Tonic is the resolution. Mm. So the tonic is our home base, the, the key. And the second one is, it sounds like it could be a dominant. Mm. But the first one sounds like it could, in a way, also be a dominant mm. for the second one. So it's this weird kind of musical game trick mm. that Brahms is playing where the, the harmony is not settled. These are two chords that don't clearly define what key we're in. And, okay. and then you heard it shifts somewhere else. Yeah. In any case, there's no real right answer. This whole movement unfolds in this very ambiguous space. And yeah. so we don't really know what our key is. And it, it's, it, that's the kind of feeling that so many of these Brahms inner movements from his late style have is ambiguity, mm. lack of bearing, it kind of, there's a mysteriousness about them. Yeah. 
Well, that so, makes sense then. Yeah, you, you nailed I mean, yeah, that's certainly, from a theoretical perspective, that's why he would write chords like that. Sure. But, um... It's pretty obvious, like, once you are told what the ingredients are, yeah. why it sounds the way it sounds, yeah. and why I wasn't able to sink my teeth into it, Yeah. it makes sense. That's good. Well, see... A lot of my friends, a lot of my colleagues always rag on me for overanalyzing music because it's that's too technical. No, or... it's meant to be analyzed. And that's the thing. Good analysis. Mm. I'm not saying I always do good analysis, but well done musical analysis should be in service of explaining why something feels a certain way mm. or sounds a certain way. Mm. So it's not anti-emotional to, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, that's mysterious. Mm. Well, why, but why does it sound mysterious? Yeah. Let's, let's be a little curious and yeah. let's dig a little. So in any case, I appreciate you defending okay. my, uh, Anytime. my high levels of, uh, uh, no, it's nice. It's nice to be told exactly why it sounds sort of mysterious yeah. and it's like oh well because those are diatonic and or tonic and, tonic you know. and diamond. yes yeah, tonic yeah. and there diatonic diatonic is another term is that a thing that's a term that's mm. a very good term um yeah good so so in any case that's the second movement and it's a fantastic movement the ending uh i recommend our listeners listen to the ending of the the second movement because we kind of get an answer. Actually, let's play the clip. I pulled okay. the clip. Let's listen to the end of the second movement. So I'm, I'm curious, did you feel like, did it feel resolved there at the end, or unresolved? It felt resolved. Then, enough. <laughs> then, if it felt resolved, then I like your choice of number two. Okay. Because we ended on, effectively, number two. Mm. And so if that felt like a resolution, then your choice of number two from the beginning was very good. Mm. If it felt unresolved, then maybe it's number one, is the real answer. It's two, absolutely. It's absolutely two. Well, that's, I like the take. I like taking a strong, strong stance. It's what I do best. So, <laughs> very good. Um, we shouldn't leave out the other movements of this piece, which are also fantastic. Let's hear the very opening of the first movement, which is maybe the most famous moment from this piece, a fantastic cello solo. We heard in the, in the piano trio a fantastic cello solo to open very different character here, but here's the opening of, of the first movement of the string quintet. <laughs> Thank you. 
we get the opening of the first movement, very exciting cello solo. One brief thing that I'll mention about this first movement, it's a great listen, my personal favorite movement of the of this string quintet, although I love the fourth as mm. well, um, is that it kind of wavers between G major and G minor, which we wouldn't necessarily expect, but the the relative minor to this G major. And I only mention that because it's kind of more of this ambiguity that Brahms was writing with later in life, and that will come into play in our other piece uh, that we highlight here in a few moments. But since it's your favorite, Hannah, let's listen to a little bit of the last movement as well. We talked about on our previous episode how Brahms often struggled with finales, and his approach in the piano trio that we reviewed the previous episode was a very odd one of of writing a finale movement in B minor after the entire trio was in B major, and this kind of mysterious slinking finale that to me is a little bit unconvincing. The only movement of that piece that is a little unconvincing. Here he's definitely found his stride with finales, but he kind of resigned himself this is a generalization, but a lot of Brahms's finales that he ended up writing come off as somewhat trivial, and he, he treated the last movement, instead of making the last movement this big substantial closing movement, he treated it as more of a dance, a little like sugar on top, cherry on top of the cake. This is not true of all of his beats, like the, the ending to the first and the fourth symphonies are these massive finales. Um, but a lot of his finale movements were these kind of dance-like superficial movements that just served as a little mint at the end of the meal. But this is a particularly good one. It's kind of a peasanty folk dance, and so let's listen to a little bit of this last movement. last movement. Hannah, one of the reasons why I love having you on is because, as we mentioned, you're not afraid to speak your own mind. Mm. And that's part of the idea of this podcast in general. I will say, admittedly, and I chose to review this piece because I think it's an important piece, I don't think this is a great piece by Brahms. Mm. I think it's, um, I think, uh, actually a lot of his quintets and his string quartets are not up to snuff with some of the other stuff that he wrote. And yeah, the, the first movement I think is pretty good. The second and thirds are, are okay, and the last is is fun, but not a particularly substantial piece in my mind. And I'm actually really surprised. It's a enigma to me, but one that our listeners can think about, that this was the piece that he was going to hang it all up on originally. Because mm. to me it's just not the most convincing of his works, but I say that only to suggest to our listeners that it's okay to not particularly like a piece. If you happen to gloss over something, mm. it's not always a reflection on the listener. Sometimes it's just not the best piece, and even in my mind, maybe the single greatest composer, Brahms, didn't write all complete masterpieces. So that's my personal take on this 
string quintet, still a piece very much worth listening to, and I'm sure there are many people out there who who disagree with me, especially cellists who get to play this opening <laughs> solo. Any final thoughts on, on this piece? Yeah, I love, the reason I think why I love the last movement is the energy, yeah. to, especially to that clip that you just played. I think you have three three sort of questioning movements, and then there's suddenly some some sort of lift in the listening, yeah, in the sound world that you're you're sitting in, and that's that's what I enjoyed. And then I've also experienced just personally difficulty like getting into Brahms. Mm-hmm. We did at at the ISO we did all four we did a Brahms cycle we did all four of his his symphonies and it took me a whole year for me to finally get into it yeah and and constantly listening to those four symphonies for me to be able to appreciate them fourth is my favorite but Brahms violin concerto is my all-time so good it's my favorite piece ever composed really yeah well the end of that third movement is just you've you've nailed it yep. that's that's my favorite moment in music oh is none. it yeah the end of the third movement that piece is what inspired me to play the violin oh. so i i feel like i have to say it's my favorite piece but i do i do love it mm. it's it's it is and his second symphony for me is also one of the greatest pieces ever yeah um yeah i've heard that from a lot of people that brahms is a little hard to get into yeah and i wanted to mention that actually before we move on just an element of brahms's style in general which is that you know, we heard one of his uh, earliest works and one of his his latest works reviewing these these pandemic years. And Brahms, almost more than any composer I can think of, changed the least over the course of his lifetime. Mm-hmm. His works from varying periods in his life are remarkably consistent, and there was very little stylistic change. If there was a couple, it's that this late style, he kind of went to a slightly more reserved form of expression, and these scherzo and slow movements became these kind of intermezzo-type movements. And so we did hear a really lyrical outpouring of expression very early on in his, his output, and it becomes a little more strained, stoic, but I think that's the way to get into Brahms and what's so incredible from my mind is that he was kind of this reserved person, had a, a very stoic presence about him and didn't want to really put his emotions out there. And he, one, I relate to that. Kind of, <laughs> actually, maybe not. I was thinking about all the stoic men that I know. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that I'm like stoic, but I, I, I you know... It's a similar, sometimes you like to play things close to the vest, mm. but um, maybe you don't feel that way, because I, I just tell, I, recently I, I just think we're, we're ever, friends yeah, enough yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, but in any case, that is certainly Brahms's personality, um, and so you have to dig a little bit, but I think it's remarkable what he did. In fact, he had this well-documented semi-love affair with Clara Schumann. Part of the reason why it's so ambiguous as to what happened there was that Brahms was insistent that their their letters be destroyed, and he really tried to destroy like a lot of the correspondence that he had with anyone about his music. About he tried to destroy all of his drafts to mm-hmm. pieces because what he wanted to speak for him for eternity was his published work. And in there was everything you needed to know about Brahms. And I think that was also partly his attitude was, 
it's not about me, the person. There are these other composers, Tchaikovsky, they pour their soul on the page, and it's about them, their pains, their sufferings, whatever. For Brahms, it was about his craft, his, and that's what I find so mm-hmm. so incredible, is in a way something bigger than than the person. It's, it's this idea that we're covering here that, um, you know, his place in history and the interaction of his works with prior works and works to come. Very admirable thing, yeah. I think. And so an incredible composer. But now we have to we have to rewind very quickly and go back to the year 1875 because in the year 1875, Brahms was a very famous member of the musical scene in Vienna and he was the head of this kind of absolute music camp that we talked about last time. Wagner was super famous. He was premiering all of these operas in Bayreuth. But in Vienna, Brahms was was kind of king in a way. And this young guy from Bohemia named Antonin Dvorak sent a score to this Vienna musical competition. And Brahms was on the jury. And Brahms saw this score of Dvorak and he immediately recognized a prodigious talent, this guy from from what is now the, the Czech Republic. And so Brahms quickly became a promoter of Dvorak's works. And these composers actually, Dvorak owes a lot to Brahms, not only for promotion of his works, but also they're very similar composers in many ways. Dvorak, like Brahms, was in many ways a classicist. He wrote symphonies without programs, four movements. Um, he wrote chamber music. But Dvorak was also one of the heads, or the figureheads, for musical nationalism. And that's the other thing that we should talk about today on the con- in the context of 1890, which was... Hannah, you mentioned before we started recording, and it's something that I, I mentioned on the intro to this podcast as well, which was that uh, composers... Well, often in the history of music, the history of music often precedes real-world events. And there was a lot of nationalistic thought that was going on in the mid-19th century. And in the late 19th century, this made its way into music. And so there were all these nationalist movements in music. In Norway, you had Edvard Grieg. In Finland, you had Sibelius. Uh, In Denmark, you had Nielsen. And in the Czech-speaking lands, you had Smetana and then Dvorak. And Dvorak really became the single most well-respected nationalist composer, if you want to call him that. And this nationalism, in, in some guises, is ultimately what I think led to World War I. And so, in a way, you know, musical nationalism has no... Uh, no inherent downsides, mm-hmm. but, but this nationalism kind of led to World War I in, in a certain way. But for Dvorak, this was about writing folk music, essentially, and including folk music into this high art form of classical music. So that's what he did, and he did that so masterfully, masterfully in so many of his pieces. And today we're going to be listening to his Eighth Symphony, one of his great great masterpieces written in 1890. Did you get a chance to listen to this one as well? I did. I um, <laughs> I 
watched it last night with a gin and tonic in the bathtub and had the best time. Oh, nice. I miss seeing orchestras perform live so much. It's been since March. Um, I love that. It, I had the best time, yeah. What kind of gin did you use? Um, Bombay Sapphire. Not my, not my no? absolute favorite. It's good. It's good. I prefer Tanqueray. And really, if you've got it, I've ruined Tanqueray, so I can't. Okay, I yeah. see. I see. Yeah. In any case, story off my good choice. <laughs> um, so yeah, Dvorak eight, excellent, excellent piece. And let's just go through a little bit of this, but I'd encourage our our listeners to listen to the whole thing, as always. I always do mm. that. But this first movement, really interesting first movement, because I mentioned in the Brahms string quintet kind of hovers between G minor and G major. This movement really, really does that. And so it's in this very ambiguous space. So I want to play for you the very opening, which starts in minor, but what's going to be a very major symphony. So here's the very opening of the eighth symphony. to this this almost pastoral scene and it switches to major and so then we get to hear this this music which is going to be the main music of the of the first movement what turns out to actually be a very sprightly nature filled first movement <laughs> Fantastic first movement. Did you have a favorite movement when you listen to this? I'm curious. First. Yeah. First. Yeah. It, the first movement makes me want to be a double bassist. Oh, that yeah. Bum, bum, oh. Bum. Can yeah. you imagine? Great moment. Yeah. yeah. Or, or a principal flute that's got a huge great solos. Part. Yeah. Huge so, principal flute solos. They love this piece. Mm. Yeah. So then, excellent first movement. We get a second movement, which is a little bit, it's a slow movement, but it's a little bit in this style that we heard from Brahms of kind of a hybrid, slow movement, scherzo movement. Um, it's not really just a super sappy, romantic movement, but it does start very lyrically. Here's the beginning of the, of the second movement.
so we get this this very lyrical uh, kind of dark opening, but then there's a a B section of this movement in kind of scherzo style form, and it's a totally different character, very sprightly, very optimistic. So here's a little bit of of that music as well. on this this movement it's a fun one it's nice yeah. yeah yeah very nice that my i think personal favorite is the third mm. which maybe most people's i'm going to try to convince you that this is the best one okay um so this is the real scherzo movement where we get what's called a scherzo and a trio and again a b a kind of and here we really get two quintessential Dvorak, two melodies that are very folk-infused. They feel very Czech, Slovak. They have these elements of, of Czech dances that Dvorak would bring into so many of his pieces. So here's the first one. Here's the, the beginning of this third movement. the first one how does that it sounds kind of Czechoslovakian it does it does I can see it I can see um yeah it's very uh dance like yeah it's got the yeah yeah exactly it's a it's it's a dance movement here's the real kicker though this is what's going to convince you that this is the best (laughs) movement so Dvorak he's well known actually for writing these kind of nostalgic Mm folk melodies the best known one is from the new world symphony the second movement but here for me he writes an absolute masterpiece of a melody in the trio section and it's got all of the greatest things about Dvorak that nostalgia the folk element so here's the the melody from the trio of this this third movement
that's a beautiful melody, mm, right? Yeah, it good. sort of makes your your eyes well up. Yeah, in a, in a nice way. Oh yeah. yeah, it's really, and you can feel like this longing for home or it's something. It's so warm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, great, great melody. So that's the third <laughs> movement, and then again, interesting. I mean, this last movement of of the eighth symphony, a lot of people love it, but it's it's also a perplexing finale. So maybe Dvorak had a little bit. I actually think Dvorak had a similar problem with finale that Brahms did like his seventh symphony I find the finale of that very perplexing the ninth symphony finale is 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 great but but also in some ways for me the least substantial of the four from that symphony so they they both they shared a lot of similarities and one of them was this interesting approach to finales and this one is interesting because it really has two different, completely different characters. A lot of the music from this finale is very slow, and we'd normally expect it to be, to be fast. But here's the main theme from this this last movement. isolation that's it's weird right that doesn't mm-hmm. seem like a like a last movement idea no very, it sounds like a second movement idea yeah exactly yeah. it's very slow it's very lyrical but then we get this music just a little bit li- we actually hear that a lot and he repeats this theme over and over and over again it almost becomes this kind of theme and variations which is also it's it's a little odd the way he does that but but then we burst into this ruckus again folk like music for the fast section of this last movement and here's what that sounds like. fun piece for the principal flute mm. there's another massive solo right there yeah mm. so that that's the fast movement of this the fast music of this movement and yeah it alternates between these two very different characters it's a really fun movement to listen to and it ends fantastically but but interesting finale uh slightly odd again maybe my least favorite movement of the four i know that's a weird take people will disagree with me mm. on that but of this symphony um not totally convinced by the finale. But as you I did, I think, very astutely, Hannah, the first movement is an absolute masterpiece. Oh. And I've convinced you, I'm sure, on the third movement now, so. Ranking? Yeah. Uh, first movement first. Okay. Third movement because of you, second. Good, good. Toss good. between two and four. I think I would probably place... Four above two. Yeah. Most people would. Most people would. I'm a, I'm a fan of the second movement, mm. partly because it's hard to conduct. Mm. And it's just a, uh, 
it's a good one to have okay. practiced a little bit. So okay. I think that's part of it. In any case, that's Dvorak's Eighth Symphony, and that's our our second and last piece for today. So that'll wrap up our review of 1890, a relatively uneventful year in history, other than this this Russian flu pandemic, but but an eventful year in the history of music. Mm. Um, and next time we will be back very much in the thick of eventful moments in history with, with some more pandemic material. But in the meantime, I wanted to uh, thank you, Hannah, so much for joining us. We've, uh, we've certainly missed you on the podcast, and I know our listeners have too. So what are your plans for uh, the rest of the next, like, 12 months? For the next 12 months? <laughs> I literally don't know what I'm going to be doing a month from now, yeah. let alone two weeks from now. Yeah. Um, so my plans, uh, let's see. I'm trying to learn German. Are you? It's not going well. <laughs> yeah, I was actually thinking about dusting up on my German, too. It's I not, need to do that. I should be dusting up on my Spanish, but I'm just sort of avoiding that yeah. and just moved on to another language. Nice. So that, I've um, been watching a lot of movies, been doing some play readings with friends. Uh, um, so yeah, just trying to stay busy, um, figuring out what's, what's going on, what's yeah. going to be next. Well... Listen, I think that's true of everybody, and uh, I know what I'm doing for the next two days, and I'm I'm really dreading it, just mm. moving all of my stuff out of this apartment. You know, they say that you, well, it's we all realize this, and it happens that you remember kind of like traumatic experiences in your life, and I remember every time that I've moved, because it sucks <laughs> because so it's a much. Traumatic it is experience. the worst. It is just the worst. You, I'm at your apartment right now, and you really don't have that much stuff. Well, like, this is it's strategic because I hate moving so yeah. much. I'm not a hoarder by any means, and I throw stuff away for this express reason. Yeah, it does suck to move alone, though. I do get alone. that. Alone, yeah. yeah. It really sucks. Yeah. This this I haven't done as much, and I'm also moving a friend out of her apartment, as I mentioned to you. So, mm-hmm. like, moving two people's stuff alone, I often have moved with someone else, and that is, that is easier, because yeah. at least you're like... The problem with moving, though, is that you can't even really... You can't watch, like, new TV... Because you're oh no packing stuff up, you nope. have to be looking. So you have to watch like, you have to or watch or listen to something that doesn't require you to look at the screen. Mm. So it has to be kind of mindless. So it's not even that interesting. You can't even watch like new TV shows. Yeah. Oh, I do it. I it's not even moving, but like organizing or like cleaning or something. Complete silence, and then you start to. That's when I start having like really productive mental thoughts. Uh, I don't know if you're ever like that. But I, would I'll start, go... I would start having really unproductive mental Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> uh, no. I, I do it, like, with puzzles, too, during uh, all this quarantine. We'll yeah. just, like, spend seven hours in silence thinking about stuff. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's impressive. That was a I, big reveal. <laughs> yeah. I've Well, I've recently been biking a lot mm. um you can see my road bike right over there if you uh okay we got to talk about this bike when when we're done yes because i want to i need to get a bike it's super nice but i highly recommend it to anyone who needs a quarantine activity i love you get out on the bike and mm. that's where i have my productive okay. thoughts is just you're kind of biking it's light exercise but very head clearing and just yeah. you know can think of 
content for new podcasts, sure. whatever it may be. So in any case, this is this is all digressions, but we hope <laughs> everyone out there is is staying safe, healthy, uh, all of those good things. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. Of course. Yeah, it's so any, good to be back. Anytime. You gotta... I unfortunately am leaving Indianapolis again after I move all my stuff. But I mean, I'm I'm uh, here on call, so yeah. whenever you need. I'll be back and okay. forth, and certainly be back whenever we come back to concerts, and you can call in anytime. And so we are, uh, our listeners miss you, so thanks for, for coming back on. We will see everybody soon. Thanks as always for, for listening, and we'll be back shortly. Take care.